It's time for To The Last Drop Podcast with Liam Delcom and Brendan Nell. We're back. It's week one of the World Cup. The first round of matches is gone. As you heard there, there was quite a bit of an atmosphere there. Uh, I'm Brendan Nell. Liam Delcom is with me, and this is To The Last Drop. Uh, Liam, you recorded that. Uh, it sounded like quite an atmosphere. Where were you, and what was happening while they were belting out that anthem? Uh, so we went uh, too long. Um, in, initially, I was scheduled to be in Paris for the opening game, but then I thought uh, the logistics involved uh, with that would be a bit of a challenge the following day because I was also scheduled to go to the England-Argentina game in Marseille. So I thought it best uh, to sit out the opening game and uh, wait it out in, in Toulon. And we found a little pub. Um, it's a rugby pub, a rugby bar. Um, half a block, not even half a block, um, I'd say 50 meters from start, Felix Mayo, uh, Toulon's home ground. And uh, the folks who, um, who support Toulon, they obviously frequent the bar and they created quite a vibe, quite an atmosphere <laughs> in that little establishment. Um, we we kind of discovered it by accident earlier in the week um, and figured that is the best place to go watch the opening game and and what a good call that was that was probably one of my better rugby memories outside of a stadium yeah, I, yeah. <laughs> it, looked, it looked rather festive and i must admit there was quite a bit of fomo from my side watching it <laughs> from from yeah it looked like an epic place to watch it i think let's let's start with just talking about i mean you obviously over in toulon you're heading off to bordeaux today um the box move out there to play romania this weekend uh but uh yeah, just, yeah for people who obviously don't know how rugby tours work and the logistics and that they think they think you're having a nice uh, long holiday uh sitting in pubs <laughs> watching games Etc. Uh, yeah, they don't quite realise, and I know this is. I know it's going to sound like uh, Afrikaans. They say, "Yeah, you, you're complaining with the white bread under your arm, something." Yeah, so, uh, but you are in a fortunate position to be there. But it is logistically a challenge, and uh, just maybe just tell us how how a normal day works for for somebody who's covering the Springboks. Okay, so yesterday was a little different because the the team announcement, and it's, this has now happened two weeks in a row. Uh, the announcement has been moved. Uh, from a day engagement to a 7 p.m. Um, engagement, which then obviously throws your day out a little bit. Um, it then also obviously means that you uh, all have to work a bit later. In other words, you have to file a copy that's ready for the following morning. Uh, in the case of uh, the Springboks this week, um, in fact, last week as well, because they've been based in, in Toulon, uh, they're on this little peninsula called sublets and the best way to get there from the port of Toulon is to take a ferry so you need to coordinate your your journey properly uh, you know it's about 18 20 minutes on the ferry uh, you have to file copy you have to help you have, to, you have signal um, while not getting too seasick so yeah it's it is what it is I mean I recall uh, doing uh, something fairly similar to 2003 World Cup where the Springbok stayed manly uh, while the rest of us uh, were in the Sydney CBD. So, yeah, you kind of um, roll with the tides, as it were. 
Yeah, no, and, and it does it does sometimes get challenging. I mean, I've also I remember in in in, in two thousand seven staying on uh, the other side of Paris in La Défense, which is very far north, uh, and then having to get to press conferences and there's obviously deadline pressures and things like that. Um, it's obviously always great to be there, but I think uh, yeah, it is is sometimes logistically a challenge, and it's been a challenge for us. Obviously, we want to record this as close to the Springbok um, team announcement as possible, uh, but. Uh, uh, yeah, when they have a 7 p.m. Uh, press conference and you've still got a file copy for your newspaper and <laughs> it makes it quite a late night. Uh, so, yeah, it, it, it has been a bit of a challenge, but, yeah, these these challenges don't come around yeah. every day. Yeah, look, it's it's also part of the fun. I mean, you kind of uh, sometimes it's, it's, you run things very tight. Uh, you may be the last person on a train or the last person on a plane or a ferry or whatever the case may be. Um, the, you may email something into the office and the moment the thing says sent, you know that you're good to go. That's the most important thing almost of your day that, you know, you were able to meet a deadline, um, and, and do the stuff that you're supposed to be doing, um, while, you know, while you're on the move. So, yeah, look, it's part of the fun. While we're on it, I mean, we're going to get to the, the Bok team announcement now, obviously, because that's the big news. But just, uh, just how was the atmosphere at, uh, at, at, at Marseille on, on Saturday? I'll take it you were there for the England game as well. And, um, so how was the, how was the atmosphere and how's the atmosphere being in France? You know, for people who want to know, are the French people embracing it? I'm sure they are. We know they're very passionate people, but just how was it to be there in that stadium? It looked awesome. Yeah, look, the the England Argentina game was was something else, and and, and to be fair, that stadium uh, Stade Velodrome or Stade Marseille, as World Rugby calls it, um, you know, they turn any, you know, they turn things uh, around often to make it as sterile as possible. So, uh, in the Stade Velodrome, wonderful atmosphere. It's a great stadium. I love it. Um, when France play there, they put on this show. It's it's lights and it's. Um, the acoustics are great and it's uh, it's usually a wonderful occasion uh, a little bit toned down um this time around for, for these world cup matches but still a wonderful atmosphere i mean the argentinians and they were a lot in town um they brought the party they brought the fierce uh, you could hear them singing on the metro as they disembarked trains um um, yeah, yeah, so they were in full voice and then of course the england fans would respond they swing low <laughs> Um, but yeah, nice festive occasion. And, uh, while not as festive the next day, um, there was certainly a lot of uh, patriotic fervor, uh, with the Scots, uh, Scottish fans and, and the Springbok fans. Um, yeah, so, so both marvelous occasions and from all accounts, you know, at other venues as well. Uh, France has embraced this rugby world cup. Now, let's get straight into the, the freshest news. Um, obviously, the Springbok team has been announced for scrum offs. Um, and it's gonna, we're going to start off with a clip of just Jacques Ninaba, uh, explaining why four scrum offs and, uh, get, get in his own words. And then, uh, we'll chat. You're about. with Brendan Nell and Liam Delcom on the To the Last Drop podcast. I think from the start, uh, uh, probably people were wondering why we were taking four scrum offs. But I think if you look at the versatility within that uh, four scrum offs, um, that's probably what we saw. 
Um, if you, Grant, Grant, for instance, he's played the majority of his school career, not the majority, he played his school career on the wing, and he only had, in, in the last couple of games of Paul Jim, he actually went, went to nine. And then, um, like you guys would have probably seen in the game that we played against uh, New Zealand, um, a guy like Kubis can, can, can help us out at wing as well. And then, obviously, Fof. The majority of his school career, he played fly-off. And then he's also played fly-off for the Lions in the Super Rugby and also for for Sales Sharks in the Premiership. So so if you look at, yes, there are four nines. They play majority of their rugby uh, and on a professional level at nine. But a lot of them have played in different positions. And that's nice for us. Uh, I think in the, the, the key thing of this game is that you, we can actually give off a run at, at, uh, at 10, you know, uh, which is, uh, and I'm, I'm, not a, I'm not being disrespectful at all to, to Romania or to the test match, but it's, a, it's an opportunity for us to, 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 to try him out in a test match under pressure. Um, at 10 um, which obviously he's trained there for us numerous times like like, in, I think uh, when, when we selected Kanan uh, at 13 before the All Black Test match it's almost, listen, it's a little bit out of the box selection but not Kanan has played 13 uh, the majority of his school career and then um, uh, and, and he's trained with us there regularly so we're confident and comfortable there. Uh, the, the same with, with Faf and the guys that we selected there. It's just like uh, our, we, we all, we've said it that Faf is our third choice fly off um, but this is a nice opportunity to give him a run at 10 uh, controlling uh, the game at 10 at test match level. Well, well uh, Jacques then made made the point there, um, you know, but that's, one shouldn't necessarily just look at them exclusively as scrum halves, but as, as versatile um, rugby players. Uh, so I don't, I'm not going to repeat what he said, but um, certainly, I mean, it, it's probably just another way for the Springboks to to sort of break with convention. They don't mind doing things a little differently and shake things up. Um, the rest of the rugby world don't often follow. Uh, they, you know, they're not, not necessarily on the same page, and they find all these these things really odd and curious. Um, whether it's a six-two split on the bench or seven-one split on the bench, whether it's the use of lights <laughs> from the uh, coach's box, uh, they always find a way to shake things up. And this is another example. I mean, I'm, pro- I'm pretty sure somebody's going to have something. Uh, uh, to say about, uh, you know, the fact that four scrum hours feature in the match day 20. Well, th- that's what I wanted to come to. To me, I mean, this, the selection of Romania, we're always going to play a bunch of the French players in that game. You, and yeah. it's the game to give all the extended squad a run. But, uh, the thing, I mean, just sitting from this side, the thing that I've just been laughing at the whole time is that every time we seem to do something or name a squad or, or go into a game, we have the rest of the world sort of gasping at like, what are they doing now? You know, so all this pearl clutching going on across the world and, you know, can they really do it? I saw, uh, um, uh, an article yesterday where one of the Scottish journalists in the Times um, went, went and asked World Rugby, "Is it legal to use the traffic lights?" Yeah, you know, it's just—it's like you keep you keeping the rest of the world talking about everything else except the Springbok performance, and in a way, that's probably a good thing because the box the box quite enjoy that, uh, and and yeah, other teams are now being forced. I see the All Blacks 
We're forced to answer a question about traffic lights now. And I'm sure this week they're all going to be asked about four scrum offs. So, um, yeah, you've got to give Rusty and Jacques credit there. They keep keeping everyone guessing. And it's, uh, it's actually quite fun as a South African to watch, to be very honest. Yeah, but then it diverts attention, uh, uh, not the Springboks' attention, because they've figured this thing out. It's, you know, the other teams, uh, the commentators and so on, the pundits, um, to sort of figure out after the fact, you know, you know, what are the, why are they doing this? And is it, will it, will it work? Will it, is it legal? Et cetera, et cetera. So yeah, but, but it has been fun to observe. Uh, yeah. And I mean, just from, I mean, you, you've been at the press conferences and that. Have you got the same sort of sense? Cause obviously social media can obviously be skewed at times and we all watch so, social media and, uh, the takes can be rather ludicrous on social media at times. Um, so, so has, have you been getting the same sort of sense from, from journals, especially the overseas journals at, you know, at the Springbok press conferences? Uh, only really after the, the Scotland game, uh, there were a couple of Scottish journals who, um, they sort of pursued that line of interrogation about the, the lights. That was one, that was one feature. I remember Malcolm Marks, uh, in a mixed zone. Um, a mixed zone basically is a, is an area designated for, for quick interviews with the players as they leave the stadium, as they hit for the bus. So you can have a quick two minute interview with, uh, with the player. And he was pulled aside and asked about the use of lights. And he said, well, he doesn't really know, you know, how that system works. Uh, that's a communications tool used by, you know, the management. Um, but he did make the point that it's difficult to, in that stadium in particular, uh, to hear instructions. Um, so even if, if they get to a line out, uh, it's, it's hard for the jumpers to sort of hear what he has to say and vice versa. So, uh, so he kind of explained that element or that part of it. Um, but, but yeah, I know that it's only been at the game really that we, you know, uh, journalists have, um, asked those types of questions. Uh, talking about Malcolm, that's probably his best sidestep that he's ever done as well. He's not known for for wading into controversy. He's a guy who likes to sort of uh, step back, and he's not known for the big statements in 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 uh, interviews as well. The well, one the one thing that people say. <laughs> And, uh, and uh, the, I mean, his play on the field is obviously something else. But, uh, yeah, one thing people should realize about mixed zones as well, it's, it's almost like a snake queue that you go through. Yeah. Um, yeah. And you stand there and you obviously hope to catch them. And depending on how the team's done, um, you, obviously when they win, they're quite quite happy to talk with other guys. But uh, I remember in 2015 when we'd lost to Japan, uh, yeah, you couldn't, those guys were like Usain Bolting the, 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 the snake queue. They couldn't, they, they sort of, Make as if they ignore you and they run past you. Know? So, um, yeah. it's always quite, it's quite a, it's quite a th- gymnastics for, for a journalist to catch guys, uh, <laughs> that yeah. mix zone, uh, which makes it quite fun. But, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's one of the unique things about a World Cup. So, um, speaking of marks. I want to ask you, I mean, obviously we've heard the stories about his injury. Um, yeah, and, and there's a huge worry because he's such a big part of that Springbok team at the moment. Mm. Um, w- what's the latest that you've heard? Well, the, we obviously asked uh, Jacques, uh, what is the nature of the injury? How severe is it? And then he basically said, uh, the, the personal uh, information, uh, uh, the Protection Act, the Poppy Act, um, precludes him from divulging that information. Um, and it's basically the same uh, line that he used um, when he announced the squad, when Lord de Jager wasn't named in the, in the Springbok squad. So, uh, you know, that's something that, could become a little problematic going forward because they, they could just pull that card um, randomly going forward. So, yeah, so we don't know a lot more. Um, 
I do know that after in the game against Scotland, he went, he left the field uh, to get three stitches on his forehead. But I mean, um, that's obviously not the reason why, uh, you know, he's going to, um, well, he's sitting up this way, this week anyway. He wasn't going to be selected this week anyway, but that's why he's now sort of been um, consigned to the fine, to the sidelines. So um, I'm sure we'll find out more in the coming days, but for the moment, uh, it's all shrouded in a little bit of mystery. Yeah, I suppose there's nothing like a World Cup with some without some angst about some injury somewhere along the line. And uh, you know, yeah, and, and also in the case of uh, Ibn Etzebet, that the seven to ten day prognosis that was, uh, I think Rasi Rasmus spoke about that earlier in the week. That now looks like a ten to fourteen day. Uh, return to play possibly. So that puts him in real danger of missing the island game. Uh, and in fact, I kind of got the sense that Jacques was sort of preparing, uh, people for that, for that news when it ultimately comes, uh, that it's a bit probably won't play against Ireland. Oh, that'd be huge. They're, they're, especially, I mean, he's also such a heart of that Springbok pack as well. They've got depth, and I mean, it's not, I mean, as the, the Bok team always says, if someone's out, the next guy must just step up. But I mean, losing Etzebeth would be just, um, you know, mentally just a huge blow in terms of the psychological stakes going into that game. Uh, and, and, and that's the thing. I mean, the, to me, just two things there. The, the Poppy Act. <laughs> We see that it's it's almost become the favourite excuse of coaches now when they don't when, when they want to avoid a question. I'm not saying Jock Jock might be very genuinely, uh, you know, not wanting to to answer the question, and uh, it is a medical question. But yeah, the, the it's a big thing. It is a big big um, is a massive thing for the box. And uh, yeah, I think I think this next week they were always talking about all the talks being about injuries. Outside the tight five, so that Andre Pollard or the Kanye Amkin rejoin the squad. And uh, now it seems like all the injuries have been in the tight five. And, and luckily there is depth there, but it's not where you really want to have the pack have injuries. No, I mean, the, the, the one of the box strengths um, has been their the depth. So uh, you don't want to chisel away at that uh, at all. A guy like Erge Sleiman could, for instance, come in and... and uh, deliver a masterclass, uh, but again, I mean, if Etzebet isn't there, then you know they they don't have the depth in numbers. So yeah, that's something they will have to consider in the coming days. Yeah. Um, if you look at the rest of that squad that was selected for Romania, um, a fairly inexperienced squad by their standards. I think in the last two years, there's only been two other teams that they've selected that has fewer caps in the starting lineup, and the one was. Uh, the defeat against Wales uh, in Bloemfontein last year. Um, and then uh, earlier this year, the team that played and won in Buenos Aires also had f- uh, fewer caps uh, in the starting 15. So, you know, by, by their standards, you, they usually put out a fairly um, experienced uh, side. So by their standards, you know, not a really yeah. experienced squad. But of course, we knew that they were going to go this route anyway. Well, I, I suppose the danger there is because because Ireland beat Romania by eighty odd points, you know, you, you don't exactly see them as a threat to the Springboks. So, first of all, you expect to win, and you expect to win quite well. So, you want to give everybody a run in that squad, and then you and then obviously above that, you want to you, you've got some some team goals that you want to hit as well. Uh, the one guy that we're going to just listen to now as well is also uh, the, the oldest man, Branas uh, Dion Ferri, who uh, has also, you know, he's going to be playing as reserve hooker there. Uh, and, and Marco van Staden was 
practicing this week, I hear at at at, at this is like the emergency in in case of emergency yeah. break glass uh, hooker. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So so escom that that uh, there's some analogies you can make there. Yeah. <laughs> I, I couldn't resist when we had um, Dion in a little media pod where he sat down for, for a few questions. I couldn't uh, help but ask, given his advanced age, um, how much he remembers of Romania's game against the Springboks at the 95 World Cup. And the first thing he said was like, who was the big fight again? Wasn't that against Canada? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That, that, I don't remember anything of the Romania game. Yeah. Well, let's, let's listen to that clip quickly. And then also, and also Dion just talking about how he still manages to go at at the age of thirty six, uh, and he's got a, he's got almost thirty seven. Almost thirty seven. You're right. Uh, he's got he's got a, a, in, a in, fact, uh, in fact, I, I almost compared him to Lucy Jordan um, at the age of thirty seven. But I wouldn't I wouldn't necessarily do that to his face. Yeah, you, you've got that. Last yesterday when I saw that team, I had um, there was another song in my mind, uh, Kaiser Chiefs. I predict a riot, uh, which is. Uh, <laughs> Hopefully we'll see something like that. But listen to Dion, and yet we'll be back now talking about the rest of the games. Do you remember anything from Romania's game against the Box in '95? Um, I know it was Canada, the big fight. Eh? Um, <laughs> yeah, uh, no, 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 I can't remember. It was I was nine years old, so it's, yeah. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know what. I can't put my finger on why why it's, I still feel good and still can run with the young with the young oaks. Um, yeah, I don't know, maybe I did gymnastics for nine years and I'm not the biggest oak uh, doing all the weights in the gym, so probably I can ride it up to those two. You're with Brendan Nell and Liam Delcom on the To The Last Drop podcast. Uh, one of the things, Liam, that people don't also realise is that when you're travelling, because of the logistical uh, nature of getting to games and the hours you have to get in before the games, etc., you guys don't really get to watch... Uh, other games, and so it's the same in the November tours when they have these games back to back. You know, you, you tend to concentrate and with all the press conferences and moving around. That that's pretty much your day. You didn't you didn't get to watch too many, and it's strange when people think you're at the World Cup, but you're not watching all these games you know, as a fan would on TV. Mm, yeah, you you actually going to end up watching a lot more than, than me. Um, yeah, you're right. You're on the move, and uh, there are always other things to do. Um, and as it turns out, I'm in an apartment now. Uh, that doesn't have a television. So, um, and it's sometimes even when you have a, a television in your apartment, finding the right channel um, is often a challenge. So, um, yeah, uh, yeah, you're going to have a, a far broader view of what's going on in terms of um, the, the on-field action than, than me. Yeah, just well, just on that, we'll go quickly run through the games of the first weekend, and very strange format if you if you think of it, because the first weekend there was some epic, you know, box office type clashes, and now this weekend it's almost the opposite. It's it's going to be a bunch of one sided games coming up this weekend. Maybe maybe Fiji Australia, and maybe England Japan. Although I don't think Japan are quite at the level they were. Japan is Nah, so but I mean, and and our game will be pretty one sided, I reckon, as well. But yeah, obviously, let's start off with the big one, the opening one. You watched that in the pub, um, France, New Zealand. What impressed me was how France didn't play French rugby. How um, they kicked what forty three times. Um, they gave away four penalties. They, they 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 played almost Springbok rugby in that game against the All Blacks. Yeah, and they've they've been doing this for a while um, with with a little bit of variation. They, they're not scared to kick, uh, let's be clear on that. Um, they've also got to a formula where if they find that they can't breach the defence 
um, after three, maybe four phases, they're happy to apply the boot, mm. um, especially against uh, solid opposition, a team like the All Blacks, for instance, where if they turn it over, uh, they become very dangerous. So France are then far more inclined to rather kick, uh, play deep and let the All Blacks play from the back or kick back or whatever the case is. But um, they, in other words, they play the percentages. Uh, so, but we've we've seen that for a while. Um, the fact that they they apply the boot a lot, and they also play um, in a very measured way. They don't play a hundred miles an hour all the time. Uh, they're quite happy to sit back. I mean, you'll recall in that game they absorbed a lot of pressure early on. Uh, all Blacks threw a couple of punches, uh, but you know France were able to absorb. I mean, they were the the it was that early try, but uh, France was very much still in it. Um, so they were able to weather that initial storm and then gradually uh, turn the tide against the All Blacks. Um, I, I thought from a game management point of view, they, they did very well. I mean, it looked all a bit nervy at the start, but uh, the way they sort of uh, pulled themselves together um, was quite impressive. And yeah, I think I think best thing for the tournament as well because it ignited probably the French public and and sort of set the tone. So that that's a great one. Uh, we had uh, then Argentina England, which uh, I know you were at as well. Uh, a huge disappointment. Argentina they, uh, they 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 didn't fire a shot. It was it was almost as if. They didn't know what to do with the ball, and and, and England weren't great. Um, yeah, give give George Ford his credit. I think England are better without Owen Farrell, to be very honest. But uh, uh, yeah, Argentina didn't fire a shot, and probably the disappointment of the weekend. Yeah, um, you didn't expect that from a Michael Checker side. You, you'd expect them to show a bit of um, a bit of mongrel, a bit of fight, a bit of um, I almost used the word backbone. Um, yeah, so from that perspective, it was disappointing. Um, you know, for a team that plays in the rugby championship, that you know that can roll the punches and you know stay in the contest, uh, they didn't any, do any of that. Um, and, and England, to be fair, once they were down to fourteen, they kind of their focus was narrowed. They knew exactly what they had to do, and and they they stuck to that. Uh, so kudos to them. Um, we saw similar elements uh, that sort of bulldog spirit. Uh, in their performance against Wales as well in one of the warm-up games where they also lost, I think they had 12 players on the field at one point. Mm. Um, and we saw it in that game because they also came back and actually won that game. So, you know, they're able to do that. But in terms of their uh, general play, in terms of the attack, I just got the impression that, yeah, the England just, you know, they probably don't have the firepower to get to a, to a final again. Maybe a semi-final, but, but not a final. Yeah, no, I, I mean Argentina were just to, to me was so poor that just yeah I think I think any team that just played them tactically right like England did took the points yeah kept the scoreboard ticking they frustrated them yeah and um, I think that's a huge worry for Argentina um, Australia Eddie uh, kicked off with a win uh, he'll be very happy uh, they played Georgia <laughs> exceptionally well um, I also don't think they've got but I mean teams on that side of the pool you know can start building momentum and that and I think for Eddie that was probably the best result um, yeah, Georgia's a strange team they can cause you problems um, but yeah Australia played them tactically exceptionally well as well mm, yeah absolutely um, and also just will probably give that score just a little bit of belief because the, the Wallabies did look like a team that was devoid of that. Um, they looked like a team that was they were yet to buy into what Eddie Jones had to offer. And, you know, uh, maybe this will help galvanize them. Uh, yeah, that was certainly, it wasn't a performance that, you know, 
we would rate it five stars, but it was good enough. Yeah. The, the game you probably didn't see, the Wales-Fiji game, probably the game of the weekend. Yeah, uh, everybody you, talks about that. <laughs> <laughs> the, the, it was an unbelievable game, and um, mm. Fiji did it unbelievably well, except that you know, a lot has been made about uh, you know, how Wales got away with a lot of stuff in the 22, and it, it was rather apparent when you give away five, six penalties in your 22 and you only get a warning, and the first rolling ball in Fiji's 22 gets a yellow card. Um, you know, there, there are some questions about referees there that, and, 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 but that, that tends to happen in World Cups. Sometimes it goes for you, and I, I don't want to, I don't think we must delve too much on the refs. We've still got a long tournament to go. But Fiji yeah. were unlucky. And the, the only thing I would say for them is that they, I looked at the stats afterwards, they had a 65% tackle rate. And that for Test Match Rugby is way too low. And if they can up that, they can beat other teams uh, and they can cause Australia some problems because they've got the physicality for that. But, uh, you know, when you're missing tackles like that, you can't really complain about yeah. Things that we need to do. So, uh, and then the final game that we're going to talk about because our time is starting to run out is obviously the beautiful um, win over Scotland, which I must admit to me, <laughs> and, and this is maybe just sitting out there, but we heard the whole week about how Scotland were going to run the box off their feet, how are they going to do you know, every upset the box, and it was almost as if. Uh, maybe not the rest of the rugby world, but the rest of the home nations and all the writers we read in the Northern Hemisphere, uh, yeah, sort of were almost willing that to happen. And uh, I just thought the box were exceptional in terms of their defence. I thought I thought they cut off Finn Russell's oxygen superbly. Um, there there wasn't other than other than maybe two line breaks and the two scrum penalties. There wasn't really anything that Scotland threatened the box with. And, of course, when, when the box got their chance, they weren't perfect. They got a lot to work on. But they did more than enough to win that game comfortably. And, uh, yeah, I, I just – I know it was a tense game and a tricky game, but I, I really thought the box were quite dominant. Yeah, it was only around halftime where we felt that it was uh, a bit tight and tense. And as the players came back for the second half, um, you know, it would sort of drag into the unknown a little bit. Um, but then, you know, soon after half time, the box made a clear statement, um, and it was always going to be very difficult for Scotland to to get traction after that. Um, so it was a it was a professional performance. Um, we again in that game, uh, probably a refereeing decision or two that was uh, put in sharp focus uh, afterwards. Um, and in fact, uh, refereeing is also one of the things that the you know. The, what World Cup bosses were, were dragged into, uh, you know, a conversation that they were dragged into uh, yesterday, uh, where they had to talk about um, refereeing on the opening weekend. They had to talk about access to stadiums, uh, which was problematic in Marseille and Bordeaux. Um, they had to talk about uh, a beer not being readily available at some of the venues because they have a uh, an associate sponsor that's supposed to be uh, that, that, uh, we course. should have started with that that's the horror story of the World Cup we should have started if there's no beer jeez I'd be very well I'm, I'm working Brendan so you know those <laughs> people have to fight their own fights um, and uh, yeah and there was an assault in, in Bordeaux uh, quite a disturbing one on a fan, and um, yeah, they were they were to address all these matters at a, a, a press conference yesterday. So you know, um, at least they you know aware of these things and uh, working towards finding a, a solution. But I think when it comes to refereeing, we we kind of predicted, we knew a long time ago that you know there were going to be issues, um, and it's it doesn't speak to the quality of refereeing or officiating, 
it speaks to, I think in most cases, um, there's, there is a lack of clarity uh, when yeah. it comes to certain issues, especially when it comes to um, head height tackles or, or contact um, because it, it's not adequately explained. And, that, and I think fans will, find that, will continue to find that very frustrating. Yeah, and I think to me, to me, I think that's the one of the biggest problems rugby has is that, you know, where where you should be educating fans, where you should be making the game more accessible. Um, you know, rugby tends to sort of stick its head in the sand, and you know, you get a disciplinary decision or you don't get a disciplinary decision. But th- this weekend alone, there were three different incidents of head head knocks. One was a red card. Jesse Krill wasn't even. Uh, cited and there was another one and we, without going into the merits of all of those um, yeah, you would expect World Rugby just to, to explain to fans why the one was cited why the other one wasn't cited yeah. and and I mean we could spend hours on just debating mm. that alone in, in rugby and, and that's part of the problem and the thing for me is if you expect fans to travel thousands of miles and part with hard and money to go and watch these games and people having to buy decoders and they watch it on television. You know, if there is that expectation, the very least they can do is to be transparent and explain things like this, because it is, of course, still be a talked about uh, topic. Um, and it's, yeah, that's it's the decent thing to do. Yeah, no, exactly, exactly. And then, of course, you, you wouldn't know that, but um, all sort of, Discussion on on social media was hit by a massive copyright strike by World Rugby. So all these guys sharing clips and, and debating it on social media suddenly had their clips removed, and that's just—I mean, just that's just ridiculous. So, anyway, but but saying that, Liam, you've got a you've got a very long journey ahead of you to Bordeaux. I think we've chatted a lot. We'll be back next week. There'll be a lot to talk about again, and uh, I'm sure we could easily fill a couple of these shows. But uh, yeah. Travel well, and uh, yeah, and, and I'm 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 jealous. And please uh, make sure that you live the, the big life for all of us. Uh, well, I'll try. I'll try and catch this train. This is my first priority now. So yeah, we'll, we'll chat later. Cool. We'll chat to you next week. Thanks for listening. And a reminder: you can find all the To the Last Drop podcasts on the Brendan Nell YouTube channel, Iono.fm, Spotify, Player.fm, Pocket Casts, Google Podcasts, and iTunes, or wherever you find your favorite podcasts.